This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. In 2004, then-Senator Hillary Clinton spoke at a fundraising event in San Francisco for then-Senator Barbara Boxer. She criticized tax cuts that had been supported by the Bush administration and suggested that they would be repealed. And in saying this, she bluntly told her, no doubt, well-heeled audience, quote, we're going to take things away from you on behalf of the common good. The blogosphere exploded with indignation, much of it from conservatives who identified what Senator Clinton had said with Marxism common good, communist, the words are <laughs> close to one another. Um, more recently, a number of decidedly more conservative public intellectuals have championed things like common good constitutionalism, common good economics. Uh, some more libertarian conservatives have responded to these calls in ways that echo the conservative response to Hillary Clinton by, for example, associating the idea of the common good with tyranny arguing that it comes out of a political tradition deeply at odds with the American founding. At the same time, many have dismissed talk about the common good as a vague slogan, a trope of usually Catholic political rhetoric that is largely empty of real content. So the common good is seen alternately as Marxism, the revival of an ancient and un-American threat to human liberty, or as a merely empty cliche. The idea of the common good is a quite ancient one. Indeed, it's a staple of Western political discourse. The first instance of its literal use, that is of the literal phrase common good, is in Herodotus. One can also find it in Thucydides, Plato, and especially Aristotle, for whom it plays a quite important role, a role that it's made its way into specifically Catholic political thinking through its adoption by St. Thomas Aquinas. The common good is the name for the final cause of political association and political practice. The final cause, that is, the, to use Aristotle's terminology, that that for the sake of which, the reason for political community, for political association, for political practice. And yet here, too, there is controversy. Since at least the early 1960s, the Roman Catholic magisterium has employed a characterization of the common good that some Thomists have found scarcely recognizable. There is here a concern that somewhere in the mid-20th century, Catholic social teaching, an integral part of Leo XIII's revival of the thought of Thomas Aquinas and engagement with modernity jumped its tracks. It is this worry that I'd like to discuss with you this evening. I first want to discuss the formulation of the common good, the account of the common good in contemporary Catholic social teaching then I want to look at what St. Thomas says about the common good, uh, focusing especially on one particular text. Then I want to make a few historical remarks about the relationship between St. Thomas's view and what we find in the magisterial statements that concern the nature of specifically modern politics. My own view is that those statements represent an authentic development of the Thomistic tradition, not a derailment. They have to do with the church's effort to come to terms with specific aspects of political life in the context of the modern state as a dominant political form. So I have three sections, uh, and this is the first one. 
The now standard way of characterizing the common good in Catholic social teaching is most authoritatively stated in the Second Vatican Council's 1965 Pastoral Constitution on the Church in the Modern World, Gaudium et Spes. And if you have the handout that I think was uh, distributed, this was the first quotation, number one on that handout. Uh, Article 74 of Gaudium et Spes, uh, quote, the common good embraces the sum of those conditions of the, of, of the social life whereby men, women, uh, men, families, and associations more adequately and readily may attain their own perfection, unquote. The formulation is very close to one given earlier in the document in Article 26, as well as in the Council's Declaration on Religious Liberty, Dignitatis Humanae. Its presence in the Council documents is certainly a function of its presence in St. John XXIII's social encyclicals, especially Mater et Magistra from 1961. And it has been cited in subsequent social encyclicals from Paul VI all the way through Francis, as well as in the 1993 Catechism of the Catholic Church, the 2004 Compendium of the Social Doctrine of the Church. Nevertheless, it has always been a subject of concern to some Thomists. I want to discuss that, but first I want to focus on four aspects of the formulation to get clear on just what it says, which is not always clearly done. First, that characterization that's there in the first quotation that you have, it characterizes the common good as a sum. Now this perhaps suggests a kind of utilitarian sounding idea, the greatest happiness for the greatest number or something like that, but surely that can't be right. First, that kind of consequentialism is foreign to the Thomistic tradition and incoherent on its own for reasons that have been pointed out by many non-Thomists. Beyond that, the formulation nowhere says a sum of utilities or satisfactions or interests or anything like that, but rather a sum of conditions. Lest there be any doubt on this point, both John Paul II in Cestensibus Annus, his 1991 encyclical, and in the Compendium of the Social Doctrine of the Church, have explicitly repudiated the idea that the common good is a mere aggregation of personal goods. But the notion that it is a sum of conditions has also been a point of controversy. In the history of Western political thought and in the Catholic tradition, the common good, the bonum comune, is seen as the final cause, as I said, of political institutions and practices. To characterize the end of the political community as a set of conditions makes the political community seem like a merely instrumental good. Leaving aside the connotations of merely, and the often underappreciated fact that even instrumental goods can be very important indeed. Another aspect of the formulation seems to me to address this particular worry. The conditions are said ultimately to be the conditions necessary for individuals and groups to achieve their perfection. And the term in the Latin that's used there is perfectio. So here perfection is actually the final cause, is actually the goal. Note also that the formulation mentions both individuals and groups, and the immediate context uh, affirms the social nature of man, so it can't be uh, conceived of in an individualistic way. If we say that the real final cause is perfection, however, this seems to raise yet another problem, one noted by some theologians. In our contemporary pluralistic societies, Perfection is a much controverted notion. The church obviously has its own notion of perfection. 
but it is not one that's shared by other faith traditions or citizens with less defined religious beliefs or even none at all. Certainly the formulation is meant to be intelligible beyond our own tradition since the document is addressed to a public beyond the church. I think the solution to this is found by looking back again to the notion of conditions. One set of conditions, one set of social conditions can serve the pursuit of more than one notion of perfection, especially if we have in mind the conditions maintained by political societies. There are limits to this, of course, and therefore disagreement even about conditions, but the focus on conditions does serve to mitigate the obvious dilemmas caused by pluralism. But there is a more serious problem that doesn't necessarily turn on pluralism or disagreement. If we say the final cause of the common good is the very formulation of the, as the, and the very formulation of the common good includes perfection, are we to think that political society and its instrumentalities can bring about the perfection of individuals or groups? The document does not require one to think this, again, because of its focus on conditions. The perfection of individuals is a function of their own free, deliberate choices and the free gift of grace. The most that political institutions can do is establish conditions on the basis of which individuals can pursue perfection, both as individual persons and in association with others. There is one worry about this formulation, although I cannot fully address it until the third part of my remarks this evening. But the basic problem is this. To say that the common good is a set of conditions is not to say what those conditions are. Gaudium et Spes is not terribly specific here, although it does mention juridical institutions, the protection of basic rights and establishment and maintenance of socioeconomic conditions appropriate to human flourishing. The 1993 Catechism is a bit more specific in this respect, including among the conditions, the protection of fundamental human rights, peace and security, and the development of society itself. That's the second quotation on the handout. I'm not going to read through it, but it's just uh, uh, sections 1907, 1907, uh, yeah, 1907, 1908, 1909 from the Catechism. Now, one could conclude from this that the conditions are narrowly material. And this, again, suggests the prioritization of a kind of instrumentality. Here it is important to notice a feature of the formulation given in Article 74, of Gaudium et Spes, but not elsewhere in the council documents. It says there that the common good embraces or includes the sum total of conditions. And the, the Latin that uh, embraces or includes, the verb is complector there. And that's, again, usually what it means, includes, embraces, uh, something like that. So the, the, the formulation says that it includes those things, but it does not make those conditions exhaustive of it. This suggests a point first made, but rarely noted thereafter by Oswald von Nelbreuning in his commentary on Gaudium et Spes. He argued that the formulation of the common good there should be understood as indicating an, as it were, lower, lower level of the common good, but not a statement exhaustive of the common good as such or in its completeness. He thought this partial content was aimed at explaining specifically political society, but the common good in the fullest sense transcended this. Why would the council focus on this limited sense of the common good? I think there are both substantive and historical reasons for this, about which I'll have more to say a bit later, 
But first I want to turn to St. Thomas. And so this is my second uh, part of the talk. There are a couple of standard problems that face anyone hoping to understand St. Thomas's views about the common good. First, a point frequently made uh, by people who uh, have written about this is that Aquinas nowhere gives a complete treatment of the common good. He mentions it, he alludes to it very frequently, and given the seeming importance of the idea, it's a bit odd that he doesn't offer any more systematic treatment. Second, his discussion of it takes place in rather different contexts. That is, sometimes he's speaking in a very practical, even casuistical way about the common good. For example, when he talks about property or he talks about killing or the right of the state to exercise coercive authority, talks about the common good. Well, in other cases, he's speaking in a far more speculative vein about the order of the universe or something like that. The problem is that it's not altogether clear how these two types of treatment of the common good fit together. I want to focus first on one particular text, a very famous one for understanding Thomas's political thought, and a rare text in which he explicitly treats the common good. The text is from the Summa Theologiae, the Prima Secundae, or the first part of the second part, question 90, article 2, part of the famous uh, treatise on law. If you've had a class in political theory or something, you may have read that um, already. And so this is part of his famous uh, discussion about the nature of law, the definition of law. And he takes the common good, the bonum comune, to be the final cause, the that for the sake of which of law. And that third uh, quote on the handout that you have is an excerpt from the corpus of the respondeo of that article. Thomas there says, as stated above in article one, the law belongs to that which is a principle, a principium, so a starting point, really a starting point of human acts, because it is their rule and measure. Now, as reason is a principle, a starting point of human acts, humans are beings that act for reasons. That's what humans are. So in reason, there is something which is the principle in respect of all the rest, the starting point of everything else involving human actions. Wherefore, to this principle, chiefly and mainly law must need be referred. Now, the first principle in practical matters, very first starting point, the starting point of starting points in practical matters, which are the object of practical reason, is the last end. And the last end of human life is happiness or blessedness, as stated above. Consequently, the law must needs regard principally the relation to blessedness. Moreover, since every part is ordained to the whole as imperfect of perfect, and since one man is a part of the perfect community, the law must needs regard properly the relationship to communal happiness. Wherefore, the philosopher in the above definition and legal matters mentions both happiness and the body politic. For he says, uh, this is Aristotle in uh, the Nicomachean Ethics, that we call those legal matters just which are adapted to produce and preserve happiness and its part for the body politic, since the state is a perfect community, as he says in the first book of the politics. So that's the quotation from, uh, from, from Thomas from question 90, um, article 2. Now that passage, I think you, if you look at it, you can read it again, but if you, it has, I think you could say it has two parts. And it's important to keep in mind that the overall context is Thomas's definition of law. The first part identifies the common good in a very simple and straightforward sense as the good common to all human beings. 
that good is, he says, happiness or blessedness. Felicitas vel beatitudo. Uh, he uses those two words, by the way, felicitas and beatitudo, because those are the words that Aristotle uses um, in the first book of the Nicomachean Ethics. Now, in Aristotle, it's eudaimonia and makaria. Eudaimonia is the standard Greek word for flourishing or happiness, and makaria means blessedness. Now, uh, he says blessedness, Thomas says blessedness, but of course, they didn't have the same religion. When Aristotle uses a word, it's really to indicate that human happiness is not simply a function of, of, of a person's own actions and choices, but also of things they don't have any control over, like being born into a good family and being healthy and, and those kinds of things as well. For Thomas, it, it takes on more meaning. So the common good in that sense for human beings is uh, happiness or blessedness. So in some sense, uh, there is a sense in which the law aims at the happiness of human beings. Now, that second part uh, of the quotation, the part that begins, moreover, since every part is ordained to the whole, right? That's the second part, I think. Um, the second part adds the communal dimension. Since law is an element of the life of community, it aims not just at happiness, but at the happiness of a multitude of persons who make up a community. So the basic thrust of the discussion is that in aiming at the common good, the law affirms, the law aims at the happiness of human persons as members of a community. But the community Thomas mentions here is not community in a merely generic sense. He actually writes, again, citing Aristotle, political community, uh, communio politica is the, the, the Latin that he uses there, which he also describes, again, following Aristotle as perfect community, communitas perfecta, Again, that's a straightforward translation of Aristotle. It's in Aristotle's koinonia teleia, uh, and, uh, which means the, the community uh, that has fully achieved itself, the fully realized community, community that's achieved its end. So by perfect, Thomas doesn't mean uh, the best community ever, <laughs> the community better than which cannot be conceived. I mean, he, he doesn't mean that. Um, uh, rather, he means something more like complete, the political community is complete insofar as it contains within it all that is necessary for human beings to flourish. This is what is distinctive about political community as compared to other kinds of community that don't contain everything that's needed, like the family. And this is what Thomas means in uh, the fourth quotation that you have there, uh, which I'm not, I'm not going to read through it. You can, you can read it, but it's what Thomas is aiming at there, right? The difference between the political community and the word that he usually uses for political community, all of the translators translated as state for reasons that I'll go into a little later. That's not the best way to translate it. But the word in Latin is civitas, which again is a translation of Aristotle's term polis. It literally means a city. That's the usual word that Thomas uses for political community. So the difference between the political community is not, as that quotation says, simply a matter of the number of people, but it's a formal difference. The political community is a distinct kind of social whole, and the distinction is to be found precisely in its completeness. The fact that only in that social whole is found everything necessary for human beings to achieve their flourishing. So the common good understood as happiness must also be seen not simply as happiness, but the happiness of a civic multitude, another phrase Thomas uses. A notion of happiness or flourishing appropriate to that kind of multitude, to people living in that kind of community. The difference between these two things is important. 
Thomas distinguishes between perfect happiness elsewhere. This is at the beginning of the first part of the second part of the Summa in the so-called treatise on happiness. He distinguishes between what he calls perfect happiness and imperfect happiness. Perfect happiness is the happiness of the blessed who enjoy communion with God in heaven. Here, he distinguishes also between the ultimate good for human beings understood objectively in and of itself, which is God, on the one hand, and on the other hand, he distinguishes between that and what is uh, happiness subjectively, that is to say, the human enjoyment of that good as blessedness. God himself, therefore, is the common good in an objective sense, an objective sense. And the state of blessedness, of communion with God from the side of the creature, is the common good in a subjective sense. That is, again, from the standpoint of the creature. But neither of these things can be achieved by the political community. Perfect happiness is supernatural and requires God's grace. The political community is concerned with the temporal common good. Thomas also describes what he calls imperfect happiness, which is essentially the sort of happiness that a human being can achieve via the natural human powers. That is what Aristotle meant by happiness. This happiness is largely a function of the development of natural acquired virtues, the highest of which are the intellectual virtues. So perfect happiness is the life of philosophical, uh, uh, so perfect human happiness in Aristotle's sense is a life of philosophical contemplation. Again, even this lower level of happiness is not something that can be brought about by the political community. The moral virtues, which are connected to political life, are for Aristotle lower than the intellectual virtues. Here one can still ask whether the happiness to be found in the exercise of the acquired moral virtues is something that can be produced by law and government. But I want to come back to that point later after discussing another aspect of the common good and another way of conceiving it. Recall the concerns that I began with about the Vatican II characterization of the common good and whether it really describes a final cause. The worry that people have sometimes had about that formulation is that the common good understood as an ensemble of conditions is not a final cause, an end, or a that for the sake of which in the way that the common good is for Aquinas. Now, one way that some Thomists have understood the common good as a final cause flows from some texts in which Thomas describes goods as causes and from the proper meaning of the phrase common good, the, the meaning of the words used in the phrase common good. So we have this phrase, bonum commune, common good. There's a noun and there's an adjective. And we can look at how Thomas understands each term as indicated by usage in various important texts. What does he mean by good? Typically, look around in other texts and see what does he mean by common? You can look around at other texts and see that. I mean, that's a way to sort of understand this. But I want to register an initial reservation about this approach to things. While Thomas very frequently uses the phrase bonum commune in a political context, right, to talk about the purpose of political community, he also uses a number of other phrases uh, to describe the goal of political life. For example, bonum civitatis, uh, the good of the, of the city. Utilitas communis, common utility or common advantage. 
bona multitudinis, uh, the good of the many. He uses all those phrases in various places. I think context suggests that these phrases are used usually by Thomas pretty much interchangeably. So a narrowly technical discussion of the one phrase, bonum commune, is not as clarifying um, as we might expect if that were the only phrase that Thomas uses, and it's not. Here, I think we should follow Aristotle's famous injunction uh, not to seek more precision than is admitted to by the subject matter. In this case, the subject matter is politics, and the level of precision that can be achieved in political reasoning is, uh, let us say, not what you get from mathematics. <laughs> um, now, that said, taking the noun bonum first, Thomas famously adopts the Aristotelian classification of goods as uh, goods that are noble, uh, bonum anestum, goods that are pleasant, bonum delectabile, and goods that are useful, uh, bonum utile. Which type of good, which of these goods, um, and these, this classification has got something to do with Aristotle's account of friendship and the Nicomachean ethics, but other things as well. But if we take those three, we, we take that distinction, the noble good, the honest good, the useful good, and the pleasant good, which type of good is the common good of the political community? Well, it hardly seems like it's simply a pleasant good. In fact, politics is sometimes exceedingly unpleasant, and therefore it's not clear how good it is at all in the narrow sense. It most certainly is a useful good, but is it not also, and perhaps most importantly, a noble good, a thing good in itself and not merely useful for individual persons? Aristotle famously describes the good of a city as something the achievement of which is more noble and godlike than the good of a single person, suggesting the very high nobility of civic life. So while it is certainly useful, it is also good, of it, good, good in itself. Now this aspect seems strengthened when we consider the adjective then, communis, um, right, common. Uh, and um, uh, there are three usual senses in which Thomas uses that term. First, common or communis can indicate simply shared ownership. The community owns certain things commonly. The United States, for example, owns, uh, among other things, 11 aircraft carriers and 63 national parks. Sometimes common goods of this kind are distributed in such a way as to become private property. Think about the Homestead Act uh, of the mid 19th century or the periodic auctioning of rights to use parts of the electromagnetic spectrum for broadcast purposes. Those are a way of distributing uh, goods that are owned by the community, common goods in that sense. Here it matters that the term is usually plural, common goods. Now clearly the political common good is not common in this way. It's not divisible for one thing. It's not like we can each take a piece of it and, and, and go off somewhere or something. Now, a second way in which a thing can be common is said by Thomas to be by way, he, he uses this phrase, right, by way of predication. And here the term common indicates a shared state or characteristic, but that state or characteristic exists not on its own, but only in some person or thing. Now, this is discussed in the fifth quotation on your um, handout there. Um, the, the quotation on the handout uses the example of the terms animal or man as naming a species as common by predication. Elsewhere, Thomas uses the example of health, right? Uh, so there's no such thing as health 
You can't go somewhere and see it and then get a piece of it or participate in it or something like this. It's always in someone or something. So a person is healthy or a certain kind of food is healthy or something like that. But it's not a thing that's out there and unitary. Is the political good common in this way? Well, perhaps, but not in so far as it's a final cause, if we really want to see it as a, a final cause. It is a goal of that for the sake of which. Now, it's common in, uh, it, it, it is common in that causal sense, that third sense, um, in another sense described by Thomas specifically as causal in that uh, fifth passage that you have on your handout. A thing common in this sense, causally common, is numerically one, but it extends to many effects. The, the example Thomas usually gives of this is the sun. It's one thing, but its effects radiate out and affect all kinds of other creatures, plants, animals, human beings. This is the way the political common good is common. Uh, uh, often, uh, uh, Thomists argue this, right? They appeal to this sense of the common good. It is one thing and its goodness is shared in by the citizens and inhabitants of the political community. Should we think of the political common good as causal and as a noble good? So if we take both of those meanings again as of those three kinds of good, a noble good, an honest good, good for its own sake, but also common causally and not simply by predication. It helps to first ask what other kinds of things could be common in this way. The most important causally common good is, of course, God. And Thomas frequently says that God is the most common good there is, the final cause of final causes, perfective of everything in creation. And so God is the object of perfect happiness, as we saw earlier. But the subjective enjoyment of that good, the state of blessedness of the person, would be a good common by predication. So while God himself would be ca causally a common good, the, the happiness that's experienced by persons in union with God would be a kind of happiness that's uh, common by predication. The order of the universe is also said by Thomas to be a common good, and it would be causally common as well, although from the subjective side of the creature, its commonness would be otherwise. But what about the specifically political common good? First, it's worth saying what perhaps goes without saying, that the political community is not God. So it cannot be good in the way that God is. It cannot perfect human persons in the way that God does. Its good is less common and less good, and so necessarily subordinate to the transcendent common good. Indeed, as the common good of human beings is blessedness, the political common good is certainly not causal in any direct way, although it can be evaluated by reference to that common good, for example, does a political community thwart the directedness of persons towards God in some way? Does it refuse to allow them religious freedom or uh, the acts of true religion and so forth? You can certainly discuss that, and in some places that's true. Um, how should the political community support that kind of ordering? Well, the answer to that question is related to particular facts or characteristics of the political community in question. What is beyond doubt is that the political community cannot itself put anyone in connection with God. If we consider the specifically temporal common good, then the political common good would be the happiness of the present life 
imperfect happiness, albeit one hopes on the way to perfect happiness, sometimes the political common good has been conceived of as something like um, the virtuous life of the community, defined in that way. That's the common good, the virtuous life of the community. But it's not so easy to see what that kind of description means. Virtue is, in some sense, a common good, since having the virtues is good for all human beings. But this good would be good by predication and not causally common. Moreover, the political community and its various instrumentalities like law cannot make a person good. Virtuous action is a function of one's own free, deliberate choices, as are the acts of true religion. For these reasons, I do not think we should characterize the specifically political common good as virtue, even though virtuous living is a common good, and even a common good that benefits political communities. It behooves political communities to want their citizens to be virtuous and to do what can be done to promote virtuous living. But there are limits on the extent to which the law can do this. St. Thomas is very clear on that point. Law can remove obstacles to virtue, it helps an and that helps individuals to develop virtue over time, but it cannot simply effect virtuous actions. And laws that aim to stamp out vice can do more harm than good. So what can the political community do with respect to the happiness of its citizens? Well, here's one thing it can do. It can establish and maintain the conditions that allow individuals and groups more fully and easily to achieve their own perfection. The sum total of those conditions, from Gaudi Mitzbez, is, I think, therefore, a perfectly Thomistic way to understand the political common good. Indeed, Thomas describes the temporal common good as consisting of, quote, many things, unquote, and he emphasizes as constitutive elements of it justice and peace. But what about the causal sense of the common good that I discussed earlier? Can a sum total of conditions really be a final cause? Well, I don't see why not. The establishment and maintenance of the conditions that allow persons to pursue authentic human flourishing is a very great good. And the absence of such conditions is a very terrible evil. What we call failed states our political communities in which these conditions do not exist or have been radically reduced or damaged. Uh, and I mean a failed state in the technical sense of the term. Sometimes people throw that expression around in a very imprecise way. You know, the United States is a failed state or something. I mean, those people should go to, to Ethiopia or Lebanon and see what it's like there. <laughs> those are genuine failed or failing uh, states. So it's a, it's a radical problem uh, for, for a country. Um, the goodness of a well-functioning political community is indeed participated in by citizens for whom the conditions facilitate their own flourishing, although that flourishing is most centrally a product of their own choices. Is it a noble as distinct from a useful good? Well, certainly genuine human flourishing is good for itself. And so the unique value of a complete community as the condition for flourishing is a noble good, I think. It is, however, also a useful good. And many of the characteristic elements of modern political life are primarily useful goods. 
for example, specific legal and administrative procedures, government bureaus and all that sort of thing. Those are those are all useful things primarily. Now, the worry about the useful aspect eclipsing the noble aspect, I mean, that is a worry. That's what's behind some of these concerns is, I think, primarily a worry about liberalism. And I mean it here in the in the sense of liberalism as a kind of philosophical theory, right? Not liberal institutions necessarily, but liberalism as a kind of theory. So it's a worry about liberalism as a political theory evincing the neutrality of the state and its institutions towards the content of human flourishing. And that is a claim that many liberal political philosophers have made, that the state should be neutral about these things. But there's no need that the state be strictly neutral about all of this. Although the empirical realities of pluralism in most of the developed West means that the extent to which the political community may be oriented towards a particular and specific conception of human flourishing will obviously be limited. Now, one might ask just how helpful this account is of the sense in which the common good uh, as a final cause is. It is a way of understanding some metaphysical aspects of political life. But it does not determine much in a practical way. And this matters because politics is a practical thing. The merit of this way of thinking about the common good is the distinction it forces one to make between Thomas's view and a thoroughly reductionist or individualistic view of the common good. John Rawls, for example, the most famous American political philosopher, certainly of the last century, characterized political community as, quote, a cooperative venture for mutual advantage, unquote, in his famous theory of justice from 1971. Well, of course, it is that. It's not that that's wrong. I mean, it certainly is that. But if that's all that it is, then it becomes difficult to see why one would sacrifice one's own interests, much less one's life, on its behalf. This view leaves one to wonder if there is any real common good as distinguished from simply a means to the satisfaction of private goods. That kind of an account, common to, as I say, liberal political philosophy, but not necessarily required for the functioning of liberal political institutions, right? That, that kind of an account is a salutary provocation. It forces us to reflect again on the sense in which the common good of the political community can be a final cause, a goal, as distinct from simply a means. Thinking about this issue, requires us to add a final point about Thomas's specific view. It is a not uncommon mistake for people to identify the common good with society and the private good with the particular or, or particular good with the individual. In other words, to say that the relationship between common good and particular good simply maps on to the distinction between society and the individual. That's commonly done. We then get the question of the relationship between society and the individual and the familiar discussion of trade-offs between the interests of individuals and that of society. This is not the issue about the common good as Thomas understands it. The common good is not the community. It is the end of the community. It is not a collective being that faces the individual or towers over the individual. It is precisely a good common to all of those individuals. So the common good is not to be understood as intention with the private good of individuals so much as part of it. The common good is common and private goods are at least less common, perhaps not common at all. 
The political common good is a good that is perfective of all citizens and inhabitants of the community. It is for them. Yet, insofar as it is a final cause, one might say that they are for it. But how can that be? If it exists for persons, why would persons give up any of their private goods for its sake? For the same reason, persons sacrifice any of some things they regard as good for other goods, including the good or well-being of other persons. Think here of Aristotle and Thomas's understanding of friendship. It's an analogous, it's not exactly the same, but it's an analogous um, relationship, I think. It is perfective for persons, friendships, right? Friendship is a good for persons. It's perfective for persons. So one wants friendship as part of one's own good. But friendship directs one to the good of the friend, for the sake of the friend. Without this, there's no friendship. In willing the good of the friend, therefore, one wills one's own good. So it is with the common good of the community. In willing the political common good and acting on that will, one wills one's own good, since it is common. Now, this does not eliminate the loss that comes with sacrifice or the tensions that can arise with respect to different goods. Those losses and tensions are unavoidable aspects of the limited human condition and an indication of the limits of political life as necessary and noble as it can be. The political common good is not the most common good and not the best good. These limits then bring me to the, the third, uh, the last part of my uh, remarks. And I want to emphasize here, I mean, you know, we have the Thomistic Institute. We're talking about Thomas Aquinas, a great Dominican. But the heroes of the third part of my presentation here, as you are about to find out, are all Jesuits. So, uh, yeah. <clears throat> I've argued that the formulation about the common good that we find in the council documents and subsequent magisterial statements is consistent with the Thomistic view of the common good. Still, one might wonder about those more recent statements since they seem to focus exclusively on conditions, on one might say the useful or instrumental aspects of political life and less on the connection between the political community and human flourishing, or the noble aspects. There are two preliminary drafts of that document, Vatican II document, Gaudium et Spes, in the published acts of the council. The first draft gives an account of the common good that cites a number of texts from St. Thomas, as well as some texts from Pope Pius XII. A second draft text, a revised text sub submitted later on, has something very close to what was in the final document about the common good and the formulation that we began with about the sum total of conditions. Now, clearly that second version was preferred over the first because the formulation of the common good that it gave was that of John XXIII from his 1961 encyclical Mantra et Magistra, four years prior to the promulgation of Gaudium et Spes, and also in Pacem in Terris, his encyclical from 1963. Those were the state-of-the-art uh, versions of Catholic social teaching at the time of the council were those two encyclicals by John XXIII. But that just pushes the question back a bit. <laughs> Why was that formulation in those encyclicals? The short answer is that it was already, in a sense, current because it had been employed by John's predecessor, uh, Pius XII. 
1942 Christmas radio message, Pius XII said of the state, quote, all of the political and economic activity of the state is directed to the permanent realization of the common good, which is to say of the external conditions. The speech is in Italian, so it says esterne condizioni, the, the external conditions that are necessary to all the citizens for the development of their qualities and functions of their material, intellectual, and religious life, unquote. One can find very similar formulations in the text from both Piuses, Pius XI and Pius XII, in quotation six and seven on your handout. Quotation six is from uh, Pius XI's uh, encyclical Midbrenner Zorga from 1937, which is the encyclical against Nazi Germany. Um, and the second is from Pius XII's encyclical um, from 1939, Sumi Pontificatus. And that one, um, which uh, is never included in the kind of list of encyclicals that make up the social teaching tradition. I mean, usually you skip from Quadragesimo Anno. You might get a couple of those Christmas speeches by Pius XII, but then you skip to John XXIII. Sumi Pontificatus is never included as a social encyclical. I've never really understood why not. It's really quite powerful and worth reading. It was written and published in September of 1939, days after the beginning of the Second World War. And so it's his statement really to the world as the Second World War is beginning. What's interesting to me in particular about it is that in that quotation that I have on your handout there, and that is the importance given to his description of political society as, quote, a kind of means. And that the term that he has in the Latin is quasi instrumentum, like an instrument or a kind of instrument, right? Something like that. This is something I want to come back to in just a minute. How now how this view of things came to be the teaching of Pius XII can be explained in two related ways, one very specific and personal and the other a little more broad and theoretical. The very specific and personal source of this account of the common good was, I believe, Gustav Gundlach, who was um, a Jesuit social theorist who advised both Pope Pius XI and Pope Pius XII. Gundlach lived from 1892 to 1963. Gundlach wrote speeches and helped draft other documents for Pius XII while teaching at the Gregorian University in Rome. He also had a hand in the first draft of Mater et Magistra, although others took over the drafting and the work on the final document changed it quite a bit, and Gundlach died not too long after that. So he's personally a kind of conduit for these ideas. Um, the more general and theoretical the way that, that this view came into papal teaching under especially Pius XII uh, concerns uh, the focus taken up by John and later spectacularly by St. John Paul II on the need in politics to defend the dignity of the human person, especially in the context of political modernity, which is dominated by the political form of the modern state and the rise of totalitarian ideological movements. That second point is, I trust, well understood. I need to say a little bit more about the first. When I refer to the modern state, I mean the sort of political community that's now universal and the classic account of which was given in one way by Thomas Hobbes and in another way by Max Weber. Weber famously described the state as a political form that exercises a monopoly on the legitimate use of coercive force in a geographically defined territory. Weber also discussed the centrality in modern states of bureaucratic institutions, that is formal, 
rule-governed structures administered by officials with defined powers and responsibilities, with clearly maintained records and procedures, is all from Weber's famous treatise on bureaucracy, written, I think, a little around 1920, a little bit before then. This form grew out of the absolute monarchies of early modernity, mainly out of the need to administer large, diverse territories and to finance and fight very expensive modern wars against other states. The political form of the modern state is quite different from the polis described by Aristotle, from medieval kingdoms or Renaissance city-states. Modern states are large, impersonal, and they possess a concentrated physical power enabled by modern science and technology, a power that makes them capable of extraordinary things, both good and bad. Among the bad things is an ability to employ coercive force, even repressive coercive force. Repressive coercive force in a more sweeping manner than the most horrible ancient tyrant could have conceived of. That makes the state potentially a great threat to everything else, to individual human persons, to local communities, and to the church. And alas, it has not just been a threat. All too often in modern times, it's been a reality. While the characterization of the modern state in terms of its institutions and practices is important, it reveals important elements of modern political life. And it's also important to take account of its theoretical self-understanding. So Weber described the institutions. But the theoretical understanding of the modern state, I think, is best expressed by the great philosopher Thomas Hobbes. Again, if you've taken a political theory course, right, you've probably read Hobbes's Leviathan, which was published in 1651. In that book, Hobbes described the state as a political community brought into being and empowered exclusively by human will. An artificial construction modeled on a thoroughly materialist and mechanistic conception of nature and of human nature. Much of that account was carried on by later political philosophers with various modifications through Locke and Rousseau right up to John Rawls, who I mentioned earlier. Its most important feature is the severance of political life from the natural moral law and therefore from the eternal law, in Thomas's terminology, that is, from any sense of the world and human affairs as integral to God's providential government of the cosmos through creation and redemption. While we needn't accept this view of the state, Hobbes's view of the state, as simply the product of human will, it is important to recognize how much it has influenced the political practice and theory of modern politics. Now, Gustav Gundlach, this advisor to Pius XI and Pius XII, was heir to a tradition of specifically Jesuit political and social thought that was greatly concerned with these problems. The Jesuit tradition was also Thomistic, driven by the injunction of Leo XIII to recover the thought of Aquinas and apply it to contemporary social and political life. Of course, Leo was especially concerned with the political turmoil that engulfed Europe beginning with the French Revolution and continuing with the revolutions of 1848 and the violent, often anti-ecclesial nationalist movements like the Italian Risorgimento and the German Kulturkampf, Bismarck's restriction of the freedom of the church in Germany. 
A pivotal figure in that tradition was another uh, Jesuit social theorist, Luigi Taparelli de Zelio, who lived from 1793 to 1862. And he was one of the principal early figures in the Thomistic revival. It, it was probably Taparelli who converted the young Giochino Pecci, which is to say the future Pope Leo XIII, to the study of Thomism. Uh, uh, because Taparelli was the rector of the Roman College, where, where uh, Pecci was a seminarian in the 1820s and got him interested in Aquinas. Uh, Taparelli's sprawling treatise on natural law, written during the fraught middle of the 19th century, contains the seeds of the formulation of the common good that eventually found its way into the writings of Pius XII. It was developed by German Jesuits working at the Jesuit studium at Maria Locke, in the Rhineland. The monastery at Maria Locke was a Benedictine foundation, but it came into the hands of the Jesuits in the 19th century, and they developed a large study center there. Now, that Jesuit community was forced out of Germany during the Kulturkampf, forced out by Bismarck's uh, repression, but had already devoted themselves, especially to understanding the implications of modern political institutions and practices from a Thomistic perspective. They were especially concerned with the defense of the freedom of the church, the dignity of the human person, and the limitation of the power of the modern state. For our purposes, the most consequential of these thinkers, again, not particularly well known anymore, but very important at the time, was Victor Cathrine, um, again, a moral philosopher and theologian who worked at the, that monastery, a Jesuit, uh, who lived from 1845 to 1931. Catherine was a prolific writer on moral, social, and political questions in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And that last quotation on your handout, number eight, is a quote from Catherine's treatise on moral philosophy, first published in 1893 and running to 21 editions, the last of which appeared in 1959, the second year of St. John XXIII's pontificate. Catherine's characterization of the political common good is quoted, uh, and you can read the quotation again, it, it almost looks just like what's in Gaudium et Spes. Uh, Catherine's characterization of the political common good is quoted authoritatively in Heinrich Pesch's treatise on political economy, which was so influential on Pius XI's 1931 encyclical letter Quadragesimo Anno, which was drafted, the first draft at any rate, by another Jesuit social thinker, Oswald von Nell Breuning. It was for the purpose of continuing Pesch's work that his Jesuit superior sent Gustav Gundlach to study economics and sociology in 1924. And that's the backstory of the formulation of the common good in Gaudium et Spes. The Vatican II account of the common good is not only consistent with the Thomistic understanding, but I would say it's a product of the Neo-Thomist revival. It's an attempt to apply St. Thomas's political ideas to the conditions of modern times that is to the political world dominated by the modern state, a powerful, if often inept, legal bureaucratic entity that also presents itself as the product of human will and by social pluralism. The Vatican II theory is intended to defend the dignity of the human person and the freedom of the church and to limit or discipline the power of the modern state. While the common good can still be seen as a final cause, the state charged with promoting and defending it cannot. The state is for the common good of persons. These goals are, I would submit, more important now than they ever have been.